Hey everybody, Todd Mitchell here. Welcome back to Game Dev Breakdown. This week, you're going to hear me talk a little more than usual because it's been a while since we've talked about the virtual book tour I've been on since Inside Video Game Creation came out at the beginning of April. Three such interviews have gone out on different Game Talk podcasts, so all of us Game Dev podcasters are friends. We chit-chat, we tweet, we talk, and several of them were kind enough to have me on their shows to talk about the book, to talk about the industry, and I was thrilled to sit down and chat with each one of those people. So in this show, you're going to hear partial segments from each of those interviews. I am going to encourage you to check the show notes to go listen to those whole shows on their respective podcasts. If you haven't yet, of course, uh, do consider checking out the book because it's doing pretty well. It debuted at like number 12 in the entertainment category, which is a very big category. We've had multiple chart runs since then. It's got a great five-star rating. Thanks to all of you guys. That's it. So it's been fun to chit-chat with people and catch everybody up on how the book is doing. That is far from the only topic you'll hear about in this show, so don't worry. But do hang out, relax, and check out these chats with great podcasters, starting with my friend Mark from the Moonlight Game Dev podcast on YouTube and all podcast platforms. So uh, check out my chat with Mark, and I'll be back in a moment to sort of set up the next segment. Good evening, fans. Tim Kittrow here, the voice of NBA Jam, and you're listening to the Game Dev Breakdown Podcast, brought to you by CodeWritePlay.com. Boom shakalaka. My mom gave birth in 1985. I was blue within a Pac-Man ghost, barely alive. In the Cold War, my only blanket was Tetris. I played Rampart with Reagan Rampage, the world for breakfast. The laundromat was my sanctuary. The arcade was my church. I thought I was Well, many things around game development. So you created a game. You've you recently released a book about a game. You host a podcast. You do a blog. Um, so you do a lot of really cool stuff, but, um, yeah, can we just like get started with you just telling the audience a little bit about yourself, people who don't know you and then, uh, yeah. Sure. My name is Todd Mitchell. I am an indie developer and games journalist. You could consider me a freelance writer. Uh, I was in professional software for about 12 or 13 years before, uh, my son was born. My wife and I had a child and then I got to go indie and look after my son, meanwhile. So I uh, created a, an indie game about f- three, four years ago now. And since that time, I've been uh, working on uh, freelance journalism. I run a website called CodeWritePlay.com, which is all game industry shop talk, things like that. I run a podcast called Game Dev Breakdown, which is part of the website. And just recently, I released my book, Inside Video Game Creation. Mm. Yeah, interesting. Like... I feel like a lot of people, um, you know, they either start getting into software development through through gaming. Was that also kind of like what happened to you as well? Or Oh, for sure. When I was a little kid, uh, probably about my son's age now, probably about six years old, I got into Nintendo, started playing Mario. Uh, I was mm. hooked on it from, from the very start. So games have always been around for me, played them with the neighborhood kids growing up. And uh, as soon as I learned, you know, hey, people make these games with computers. It's a whole thing. I learned everything I could about it since that time. And I've been really glad that I've been able to pursue some very cool stuff like indie game development and uh, also, you know, connect with other game developers and write about things that they do and, uh, you know, put put together that book. So it's it's always been around my life. And uh, that's definitely how it started. Yeah, I think it's a lot of people. And like, tell us about like how you got got started in game development as well. Like, I know that for many people, it's a different story. 
you started out in software development, but uh, were you already making games at that point or was it something that you, you know, you said that you got into indie game development like a bit later on, just when you got your son? Um, how, did, how did that kind of develop into like a passion of yours? Yeah, it's kind of funny, right? Because we're we're in a different age now. I'm 35 years old, just to sort of give people a, a frame of reference. So I'm part of a generation that, you know, getting into software and getting into game development is so much different for people my age than it is for like, you know, I'm sure my son will do it next year in first grade. I'm sure they'll do some kind of like, you can yeah. go to the computer lab and code and stuff. For me, you know, I read about it in like Nintendo Power back in the day and uh, found at a yard sale. I, I tell a, a brief story about this in the book's introduction, where uh, from a yard sale, my family found an old Apple IIe from like 1985, six, something like that. We bought it for like 12 or $13, brought it home. And at that same yard sale, we found one of those books, like the spiral bound books full of code that you could punch in and play your own game. Well, that was my first introduction to that. So that was how I saw, you know, what game code looked like. I had to have my mom help me with it to get it in the computer correctly. But to run that code the first time and see that game and get that experience, I was, I was really hooked on it. I was fascinated with that. So later on at, at the end of high school, I was able to take one programming course and that was enough to convince me like I could absolutely do this for a career. I would love to do, you know, just programming in general. I felt like I was okay at it. Wasn't super, super passionate about anything else at that time. So I ended up going from there to tech school and um, from tech school, I, you know, I live in a part of the United States where the game industry is not really present very much. We don't have any big studios in my area, anything like that. I didn't really want to pick up and relocate to the coast or anything like that. But I did have plenty of opportunities to go to local companies. We, we do have a lot of IT companies in the area. So I just kind of took off with uh, professional code, professional software. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that turned into a career that treated me really well. So, um, I, you know, I loved that. I was grateful for that chance. But when I had a chance that, you know, I was able to go and work on games, uh, I wanted to jump on that, go for that. And there's my son in the background again. Okay. He's playing burnout <laughs> in the next room. That's funny. Um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, but uh, yeah, so the the coding career treated me really well. When I had a chance to go indie, I jumped on it. And I've been so grateful for a chance to do that since that time. And, uh, you know, it's been just as fun to write about it. So that's, that's great. And like, <laughs> I feel like I kind of feel it, feel the same about like what you said there is like that, you know, even from when I, when I started coding and it's the same experience is like now, you know, I couldn't even take a, a programming class in high school, which I would have, you know, absolutely loved to do. Yeah. And, um, you know, I had to teach myself a little bit of Unity here and there. Unity already existed. It's not, it wasn't nearly as powerful as it is now. Uh, and like, yeah, it's crazy. It's like seeing kids these days being able to code really soon, learning it really quickly is, is amazing right. on one hand and being able to do all these great things is amazing. But of course, you're also a little bit like worried when you're in the industry. You're like, oh, these kids are getting better than me. So- oh, yeah, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> well, how did you start? Was, was, was Unity your first thing? Is that how you learned the first it was actually how I learned to code or really what got me into it. And what also made me realize like, wow, like I, you know, I never considered myself to be like someone who was like gifted or talented or technical in any way. But I realized that like, just by really wanting to make games, I kind of realized like, Oh, well, like I can actually do this. Cause I wanting to make games made me just want to kind of power through learning to code. If that makes sense. Or at least it's learning it. 
it makes total sense to me because it, it's funny in a way because we as game developers get to go, I get to do something I'm passionate about. And I feel like you hear a lot of people say that, but like who really got into accounting through some passionate activity? There are a lot of things that people yeah. are very happy doing and they're very good at it. Uh, we need construction workers and we need, you know, people from all walks of life to do all these amazing things. But who really gets to get started this way like we do with something so fun, so exciting? Like, I, I we're, we're yeah. very lucky in that regard, I think. And just like you said, it definitely opened the path to, well, I'm also in software development and I can't say that so far. I've not been working so long, but it's definitely not a path I regretted because like you said, it's, mm-hmm. you know, obviously it's, it's a line of work that, you know, we've been very fortunate as well during the pandemic of being able to work and, and enjoying like a pretty yeah. comfortable lifestyle. When, you know, unfortunately, most people didn't have that privilege. So it's yeah, game true. Development we, definitely brings a lot of great, great things. So, yeah, absolutely. We had more people able to adapt to quarantine and to lockdown and stuff than than a lot of other fields also. So, you know, game game development is not perfect. We all know that. But boy, we've we've sure been lucky here lately, I think. Yeah, definitely. definitely. So I just want to talk about like a few of your different projects as well, and like the different things that you learned on your journey. Um, you already hinted at like code right play your blog. Uh, I'm noticing mm-hmm. the podcast been reading a lot of your articles. Uh, so like, how did you get into like starting that blog and what was the kind of motivation there? Yeah, it's a fair question. So, um, shortly after I worked on my, my indie game, which was educational and focused on kids, uh, I was kind of trying to determine like, what else can I do? I'm trying to earn some revenue from home. I'm trying to, you know, get a little bit of a new career started. So uh, (laughs) around that time, I noticed that an editor on Twitter who worked at a website called Zam, which had a a long gaming history. It used to be like a World of Warcraft thing and it went turned on, turned into different things. They wanted to go much wider, think like Kotaku or IGN. And uh, they said, hey, we're hiring new freelancers. I've always enjoyed writing. I've always been passionate about that. I've I've worked on sort of geek culture blogs and stuff with friends in the past just for fun. So I thought, you know, it's, it might not be so crazy. Maybe I could also do some freelance writing. So mm-hmm. I submitted some writing samples to them. They brought me on. They, they allowed me to freelance for them. And I got to write several really cool things that I was very pleased with. But I thought, if I'm going to do that, I need a way to kind of promote myself in the meantime to, you know, point people who want to see my writing, keep up with the stuff I do around the web. So I grabbed a domain and I, <laughs> I, I called it code, right? Play. Cause they were just three things I did. You know, <laughs> there are three things I liked yeah. to do, liked coding, liked writing, liked playing games. You know, that was all very interesting to me. So I grabbed that website and it was really just kind of going to be um, sort of a portfolio blog type thing. And, uh, after a while, I had, I had been a podcaster in the past. I thought it'd be fun to do like a companion podcast, talk about what I'm doing each week, let people keep up with me that way. So even though the freelancing kind of trailed off a little bit, I kept the website going. I kept the podcast going and those things kind of really took off and uh, started a life of their own. So I've, I've worked on that ever since. The website is probably five years old now. Uh, the podcast is probably three years going on four, maybe. Uh, and, and I love it. I, I want to keep doing those things forever. Yeah. I've, I've really had like a similar experience maybe with like a different motivation, kind of like audience building, you know, collaborating with cool people. Like, like you said, like work writing for other people. I've considered that as well. Like, I'm sure you, you're aware of like back link building, things like this. 
to mm-hmm. kind of get more traffic to your website as well, like working with other people, just building a reputation, like an audience um, and like a name for yourself, which is important as an indie dev, I feel like these days. Where It's funny. Yeah. I, I kind of got lucky on my way into this because while I was trying to work my way up to like good coding jobs when I was a professional, one of the places I worked at was a startup that got bought by Network Solutions, which is a major domain registrar. They do hosting and search engine optimization, all kinds of stuff. I worked with them for like three years and accidentally got very well trained on search engine optimization. I did it for clients all the time. I had like 40, 45 clients at a time who would call me up. You know, we need to get on page one for running shoes or whatever. Like I want my website to show up above Nike, you know, Mm. Uh, just very funny stuff. And, and it was just a series of adventures. And I, the whole time I was there, I thought this is nothing to do with coding. I would help optimize website code. So it was a little bit like I'd go through HTML and stuff. Like we need to get these tables out and search engines can't crawl through this. It was a whole complicated thing, but I, at the time I was irritated by it. But now I'm so grateful for that time I spent because I learned a lot about what it takes to help market yourself, yeah. help, help you be visible on Google and stuff like that. So that turned out to be very important. And uh, now people see that as kind of a gap, like a lot of people don't know how to do it. So I got really lucky that I picked that up along the way. Honestly, that's so valuable because like like you said, I, I did the same thing. I, I researched um well, I needed to do it. I didn't get the opportunity to do it at my job, but I realized sure. that stuff's really important and like marketing, you know, how did I did some SEO as well, like research into it. And I realized, you know, as a developer, I mean, maybe you had this experience as well when doing like SEO, you often feel like you want to prioritize like the technical aspects of it when really yeah. they're not as important as the content aspects, if you know what I mean, like the kind of like trying to optimize the page or whatever, that's not really as important as like actually making sure the stuff people see on your website is, is actually interesting, engaging, you know, and you really only learn that by, like you said, like having the experience with a client maybe, or just working on it all day. <laughs> Cause it's just, it's funny. Stuff. I, right. I don't think of mentioning that as often as I probably should, like when I'm making content, writing articles, doing uh, podcasts, we've, We've done a series of podcasts about promoting your indie game, marketing yourself, promoting yourself as a you know freelancer, things like that. Uh, one good takeaway for anybody listening is if you haven't, take just a day or two to read up all you can about search engine optimization, the basics of how it works, and that will treat you very well for the rest of your career. No question about it. Is it acceptable to go to Mickey D's just for a drink? <laughs> of course it is. But good luck leaving with just a drink. It's more than a drink. It's a Mickey D's drink. And right now, a small Minute Maid slushie is just $1.59. So all you have to do is choose a flavor, like the tropical mango or strawberry watermelon, and enjoy like it's meant to be enjoyed. Prices and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Enjoy basketball, soccer, and all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using bonus code CAPITAL and your first wager is risk-free up to $1,000. Plus, when you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, player props, and daily boosted odds specials. Download the BetMGM app today or go to BetMGM.com and enter bonus code CAPITAL and place your first wager risk-free up to 
$1,000. Now you're winning with the king of sportsbooks. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. New customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable free bets or site credit. Free bets expire seven days from issuance. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700. All right, here's another one, and this one's a little bit unusual because we don't talk about the book, the podcast, the website, any of my interviews. We don't talk about that at all. The next podcast I appeared on is called What Else Do You Do by my friend Masao Kobayashi. It's a really cool show because all of the guests are people like me and like him, game developers, game journalists, things like that. But they uh, they come on this show and just talk about other things in this show, so I have uh, sort of blown the lid off this topic before here on the on the podcast, but I played disc golf. I really like disc golf. It for sure got us through the pandemic, helped us keep our sanity. So uh, that's something I recommended several things, but um, Sal decided that he wanted to hear about disc golf, and I was happy to indulge him. So here's a little bit of that chat, and you can check that one out in the show notes as well. Hello and welcome to What Else Do You Do? I'm your host, Masao. I'm a producer at indie studio called Cut to Bits in Montreal. And today, our guest is Todd Mitchell. Please introduce yourself. Hello, Masao. Thank you for having me. My name is Todd Mitchell. I am the founder of CodeWritePlay.com. I run a podcast called Game Dev Breakdown, and I'm an indie developer as well. Very excited to be here. Thank you. Yeah, I actually listened to your podcast, so I'm very excited to have you as a guest. Um, Awesome. So, but today uh, we're not going to talk about that because uh, our podcast is called What Else Do You Do? So what else do you do? <laughs> so uh, what we landed on to talk about for this episode was a sport I picked up about a year ago during the pa- start of the pandemic, and that is disc golf. And that's something I've started doing with my son, something I'm super amped about right now. So I figured it'd be fun to talk about that. That's really cool. I feel like uh, a lot of people have picked up uh, uh, different pandemic hobbies and uh, definitely uh, going outside and getting some exercise is a a really healthy solution. I can't tell you how helpful it's been. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And it's also not a it's not a crowd sport either. Right. So it's really (laughs) not. It can be. It's very popular, but it's also something you can do with one person or completely alone. And still get out to the park and, you know, see the city and sort of reconnect with society at a safe distance. You know, it's been really helpful. So do you do it at a park or it's not it's not at a golf course or a specifically designed thing? Right. It's at a variety of places. And this was a surprise to me, too, when I discovered this because I have a friend who's been into it for his whole life. And he told he kept telling me, you got to try this. I love this thing. I'd love to you know have you in on it. And I was like, okay, yeah, great. It'd be nice to have the time. And suddenly we're all locked down and (laughs) it's a perfect time to pick up something new. So he's he's like, here, check out these YouTube channels. And I, this whole new world opened up to me. They've got courses at public parks. They've got courses at local uh, college campuses. Sometimes you do get to play on maybe a, a ball golf course and they will set up like temporary courses in just public areas. So there are a ton of options. It's, 
it's a surprising way to get out and see parts of your local area that you really had no access to before. And uh, things I didn't even know were there. These whole courses are at local parks that I've been to. Didn't even know what they were. Huh. So can you, um, I'm, I'm only kind of vaguely familiar with it. Like how, how does it basically work? Right. <laughs> you, you had mentioned like, I, I don't know about that. So let's talk about that. And I said, perfect. Because that's how like I got I, into it too. Somebody went. Like all I know is I, I've been to game shops where they sell the disc golf discs. Like sure. they look like Frisbees, but a little bit heavier. Right. That's the idea there. And I know that you like try to put it into a basket at some point. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that's, so, that's as much as I know. <laughs> right. At, at highest level, you've got it. I mean, that's that's it. So if you think about a Frisbee, it's lightweight. It's round. Everybody's seen a Frisbee. You can throw it. Uh, it goes nice and straight. The thing about Frisbees are they you can throw one a decent distance, but they don't go too far. Well, they've got these specialty discs that you play disc golf with because you can think of more like the the length of a hole on a golf course. So if I'm playing this, my objective is I want to get one of my discs into this basket. And the basket looks like a metal frame with chains draped into just sort of a round container for this disc to fall into. So the idea is I want to throw one at a decent distance, hit those chains and make it drop into the basket. That's the essence of disc golf. And it takes a lot of the rules from ball golf. So I'll start on a tee pad and I will throw the the equivalent of a driver. So you th- you can think of the different golf clubs and that'll sort of give you a good idea of like driver, approach, putter. They've got putter discs. Uh, the big difference there is if you're going to play golf, there's almost no chance you're going to lose a club in the woods. And if you go play <laughs> disc golf, there's a decent chance you could lose one in the woods or in the water. And uh, so it's cheaper in some ways, more expensive in others. <laughs> But it's it's fun to just get like they sell starter kits where you can get like three different discs and you can go find your local park and you can go play and see how low a score you can get just like golf. So you've got a scorecard that works the same way and you go for the lowest score. It's that's basically the essence of it. And there are fantastic channels you can sort of pick things up from on YouTube. So they they have their own channels like it looks like high quality, the same kind of coverage you'd see on the golf course. They've got like drone shots and like really great (laughs) cameras and stuff. I was blown away. We had just as much fun watching this on YouTube uh, during days we couldn't get out uh, as we do going out to play. It's been, it's been fantastic. So like how long is like a, like an average, average course? Like, cause golf is like a typical, typical single hole is like what? Somewhere between 250 to 600 yards. Yeah. Yeah. And these lengths kind of take cues from that, probably because some of the courses were adapted from uh, golf courses and some golf courses also have disc golf courses you can play. So they definitely take a lot of cues from that. So you're probably looking at similar lengths. Um, a lot of the parks have sort of shorter, they call them par three courses. So nothing over uh, three shots, ideally. And those okay. are just maybe a, a hundred yards shorter or uh, something like that. But then they'll, They'll go a full nine holes around the property or maybe even mm-hmm. 18 sometimes. And uh, you get a real similar workout, I would say. Um, you're probably okay. swinging a little harder in golf, but you're getting that same walk, that hike up some hills and stuff like that. So it's a pretty similar experience. So how much how much is like a starter kit for, for disc golf? Yeah, we. Uh, it depends on what you want to come with it. I remember we picked up 
probably our first starter kit that was just like three discs to throw around the backyard. It, it was in the neighborhood of like 20 or 25 bucks. So it's, it's not right. super cheap, but it wasn't too bad either. Um, I mean, it's, it's pretty cheap for a, like a starter set for a, for a for, sport, right? Like, for like a specialty sports, sport yeah, thing. Like most, most sports going to cost you 20 bucks to get in. Exactly. Even like baseball, like, you know, baseball oh, yeah. is going to cost you more than that. So we're going through a little wiffle ball phase with my son right now. Also, I'm like, well, let's spend the 250 and get him the whole set, you know, but, uh, yeah. Yeah, if you want to bump up and get your own basket for your backyard, there's a a real cheap version of that. <laughs> I think Franklin Sports makes one that's like 50 bucks. It's not super high quality, but you can definitely play it with a kid for under 50 bucks, which is nice. Okay. So, I guess uh moving right along, um my first question is like what do you get out of disc golf that you don't get out of your, you know, involvement in the games industry as a dev or your podcast or etc.? Right. So, I mean, I'm in my office all the time. I mean, I, I'm sure this first answer is going to be kind of predictable, but I spend a lot of time behind a desk. I don't get to go to the park for any reason very often or just spend some time with nature out there. I love getting outside, getting the fresh air, uh, you know, trying to you know shed an extra pound here and there or uh, just stay a little healthier, spend some time with my kid or my friends, whatever it is, I love getting to connect with the outdoors. That's something I liked about golf. Golf wasn't the most exciting thing to me, but if you go to a well-maintained golf course, you feel like you're on vacation for that hour or two. Like it's really fantastic property and everything is great. You get to be out in the trees, but uh, it's, it's all super well-maintained. You get a little bit of that from disc golf also. Like I like the outdoors. I like to hang out and you know, we spend a lot of time in the game development thing. We're we're trying to create these these outdoor environments and stuff that we don't really get to spend much time with. It's kind of a silly thing. So, I mean, it's it's a nice chance to get out and get some inspiration, take in that natural beauty and try to kind of internalize that, which you can use as as inspiration later. That's something I've found already. Do you think uh, as as a gamer and a game developer, you approach disc golf kind of in that that same kind of gamer mentality where <laughs> you're trying to like uh, trying to like optimize your your uh, your approach? Definitely. In a couple of ways. I mean, as a player, I find myself going, OK, we'll go to the same course. We have favorite courses. We'll go many times to the same place and play. And I find myself revisiting and going here's what I tried on hole six last time. It didn't work. Let me try and exploit this other path. See how this goes. Maybe I can think of something that the players around me aren't thinking about and I can sort of get ahead. It's, it also sort of takes from that QA skill set. Also, it's like you're testing and trying every single (laughs) ridiculous thing you can think of. If I turn around and just throw it behind my head, what's going to happen. And I mean, obviously most of them don't have fantastic results, but that mindset I think is great. I've, I'm, I'm sort of a sports guy when I can be, when I have time. So I've found that that translates to sports extremely well. If you get involved in, you know, boxing or running or anything, like there's always something you can tinker with the same way you would go like, what if I try this different thing the next time I'm playing Call of Duty? You know, how can I outsmart or outthink someone else and try to get ahead and climb that competitive ladder just a little bit? So the competition aspect is actually pretty cool and it's it's very familiar to anybody who tries to climb that ladder in a game 
or, you know, play, playing Halo or playing Rocket League tournaments, that kind of thing. If you're competitive, you're, you're good to go. So let, let's kind of dig further into that one. So other than just like, okay, I can throw it further. Like what is like, what are your considerations? Like what, what, what kind of different discs do you have? And yeah. what do the discs do? Like, do you have like a hookshot disc or do you have like a, like w- w- what's going on here? It is. Some of this you can kind of imagine because everybody's thrown a Frisbee and seen it do different stuff depending on how you throw it. Like if you think about uh, reaching back and throwing a disc forward, okay, great. But you've probably, if you've played around with a Frisbee for a while, you've kind of tried to do that sidearm four, forehand shot thing and see how far you can get it that way. Those are two really big shots in disc golf. Like the strategies and the uh, the techniques are surprisingly deep. And I'm still trying to wrap my head around many of the things I see the pros do. This is a sport, believe it or not, with professional players that sign huge deals. And so YouTube is full of these videos where they follow like Paul Macbeth is probably one of the number one players in the world right now. He just signed a multi-million dollar deal with uh, sponsors. And so everyone wants to know, like, how's this guy winning all these tournaments and stuff? And they have these very technical shots. They will, um, because of the way these heavier discs spin, they'll change the shape of the edge to make them sharper, something like that. And as they spin, they will get more like lateral movement to one side or another. They'll, they'll go right a little ways when they speed up at a certain pace. And as they slow down, they'll come back that other direction. So they'll use that kind of shot shape is what they call it to navigate around trees because the courses are designed to incorporate nature. You want to talk about design. Uh, mm-hmm. They will come out and say, you're going to start in this field, but this is a like a five stroke hole and it goes into the woods around several trees and the basket is obstructed by X. And you've got to figure out, like, can I use one of these heavier discs to go far, but then curve around these trees? It's actually... <laughs> It was surprisingly complicated once I got into it. And as a new player, it can be kind of intimidating, but it's a lot of fun to sort of learn those different techniques and sort of try to master as again, it's a lot of trial and error, uh, bad scores that lead to good scores over time. So it's, it's a pretty cool result of like seeing someone else's design and testing yourself against it basically. Okay. So, um, what are the discs that you have? And what, why, why did you purchase these specific discs? Like, do you have a, like a, like, because they have different functions, right? Like yes. what have you sought out? So it's kind of funny. We, they have uh, starter packages that they will market as like easy for kids to play with. So naturally we've gravitated toward that. Cause I have a kid who just, he's only been six for a couple of months. So, okay. so, so he's not a big, strong kid yet. And uh, he's getting there doing this. I'll tell you what, but they're, they're much lighter discs. And if you give them a good throw, like they will float and they will carry quite a ways. And it's very satisfying to do that because they also make pretty heavy discs. Not, like, not like you have a hard time holding it, but they're made of much sturdier material. They're not very flexible and you have to throw them with considerable force to get them to spin fast enough to get that distance or it'll be a much shorter shot that curves way too much and goes way off in some direction you weren't anticipating. So I'm finding that as a full grown man with no issues with like muscle strength or anything like that, I'm still gravitating toward my son's discs because I get this very satisfying like float out of these like light discs. 
And uh, if you've if you've never tried that, get a nice light disc golf disc and just get into a field and just launch it. It's the most satisfying feeling it, to see it really take off like that. So I'm still in that phase. I'm not a very technical or very like seasoned player yet. I'm still greatly enjoying taking these light discs and just chucking them as far and as hard as I can. We do it all the time. Enjoy basketball, soccer, and all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using bonus code CAPITAL and your first wager is risk-free up to $1,000. Plus, when you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, player props, and daily boosted odds specials. Download the BetMGM app today or go to BetMGM.com and enter bonus code CAPITAL and place your first wager risk-free up to $1,000. Now you're winning with the king of sportsbooks. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. New customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable free bets or site credit. Free bets expire seven days from issuance. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700. Enjoy basketball, soccer, and all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using bonus code CAPITAL and your first wager is risk-free up to $1,000. Plus, when you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, player props, and daily boosted odds specials. Download the BetMGM app today or go to BetMGM.com and enter bonus code CAPITAL and place your first wager risk-free up to $1,000. Now you're winning with the king of sportsbooks. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. New customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable free bets or site credit. Free bets expire seven days from issuance. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700. Awesome. All right. Finally, for the first time since, I don't know, sometime last year, I uh, sat down and talked with my friend Roger from the Gamerheads podcast, and uh, I feel like we always have great chats. So they run a really funny, entertaining podcast over there, and I hope I didn't bring things down too much with the author talk, but I felt like it was a great chat. Give it a give it a listen. One thing that that stuck out for me in the book was that it was, you know, a really good story about the journey of these folks and and how they all got into the game industry. And you know, I think there's there's some themes that go through that, and we can talk about that in a little bit. But who who is your intended audience for this book? Who like if you when you sat down and you're like, all right, I want somebody. You know who's going to read this book, um, and 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 when you were thinking about like putting these together, who who were you thinking that this would go would be a, a good book for? The the joke answer, but it's kind of the truest answer. Also, is the book is for me <laughs> when I was thirteen. You know, if that makes any sense. You know, <laughs> as I mentioned early on, I grew up very into this stuff. And as I got old enough to realize games are not only being like sold and created and played, 
they're being written about. There are authors, there have been authors for many years now who have followed studios very closely. They've been sort of embedded in the game industry, following the action and sort of sharing it with readers. As soon as I got old enough to realize that I was hooked on that. And I have never stopped reading mm. books and magazines and interviews like that. That's fascinating to me. So I thought, I don't entirely know how just how big that audience is. And I, I'm still sort of getting a feel for how many people are into exactly that. But I always loved that content. The The authors who did books like that, I am a huge fan of that. So I wanted to create more of that content just to put on that same shelf. It's been so fun to create that content and see it from, you know, the, the actual writing side of it. It's been very fun. And I'm sure there, you know, I know now that there are teenagers and, and uh, young adults who are very into that kind of thing, as well as adults, you know, like us who have been into this stuff their entire lives and have maybe never taken a look behind the curtain. It's for anybody who wants to see kind of behind the magic of video games Hopefully without ruining that magic by showing I, to me, I feel <laughs> like once I've heard the stories and seen the lives of the people who create the, the really noteworthy stuff that sticks out in our minds, it's, it's maybe even more magic for me, like to see what really goes mm. into it and what's sacrificed and what's given up and what's earned. I, I feel no, no less excited about it than when I was young, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's interesting that you say that. And, um, you know, showing a little bit of the the magic trick, I think, is always kind of fun because um, because you, you get to learn a little bit about uh, you know your your own path too, and and we'll talk about that too because that's, that's one aspect that I really enjoyed about the book too is your own path uh, in this in this industry. Um, but one of the aspects of the book that I really liked is that each person in the book or each each interview, I should say, because some of the interviews are more than one person. Um, but they have their own way that they got into industry. Um, but there is a sense that there is a, a, uh, theme that goes through it. And that's for me, I think it was a sense of curiosity of what drove them and, and <clears throat> that they want to create something. Um, what, what themes did you start seeing in the book, uh, that stretches throughout the whole stories for yourself? Yeah. When I first started creating content like this, and I'm including time I've spent interviewing people on the podcast, writing about people on the blog, I thought that it was going to be a connection or an activity where I just kind of network with people and just get a sense of like who's doing what and what's interesting about it and sort of share that with, uh, in, you know, the readers and the, and the listeners and things. But what I started to notice in terms of a theme is, you know, there are always going to be those really inspiring stories about, you know, this young teenager learned how to code in his basement or his, you know, spare bedroom and, and accomplished something incredible. You know, all, all the stories of, you know, your, your Minecrafts and your uh, Stardew Valleys and stuff, they're really inspiring stories about people learning what they have to learn to create something awesome. And I think, okay, and I'll go all the way up to, interviewing somebody who went straight from like college to work at electronic arts and see mm. the differences about those stories. And I, you know, I, I had my own bias. I thought, you know, I'd talk to somebody like that and it wasn't going to be as interesting a story or it even <laughs> might be the kind of thing that makes you feel like that's not fair. That guy got to go straight from school <laughs> into the most incredible job in the game industry. Right. Yeah. So, 
But what I found is making some of those friends and seeing that they're normal people like me who are just as passionate about games is that there is a very interesting thread woven between all of these stories. That is, these are people who nothing was going to stop these people from doing this work. And if you, the more you learn about games, the more you learn there are barriers for everyone, uh, more for some people than others, which is very unfortunate. Uh, but there are barriers that would stop any rational person from continuing into this line of work. I mean, they're very, <laughs> people have said, you know, every time a, a game is created, it's a miracle. I believe that there's, yeah. it's, it's not easy to get through any game project and it takes a certain kind of person with a certain kind of stubbornness to say, nothing is going to stop me from doing this work. And that has emerged time and time again in every story, in every interview. These are people who were not going to be told no and not going to be told it can't be done or you can't be the one to do it. And since sort of identifying that, it's been so fun to see what different forms that story takes. And that's that has been a big thing that has emerged from doing this project. Mm. Yeah, I like that. Uh, and, and one thing that I, I got out of the book too, is just, it's interesting, uh, how, <laughs> how demanding gamers are, uh, mm. and, and how much work goes into putting into a game. And, and, you know, I think there was, uh, I know there was one chapter for sure where they talked about, you know, like gamers are just saying, port it to switch, port it to switch. It's not like a button you can just hit that ports it to switch. You know, there's a lot of work that goes into that. Right. Um, I think it was really surreal for me uh, reading this book and then E3 happens. Mm-hmm. And, and I, and I know that it's not ever, I know that it's not everybody, but my word, there was a lot of negativity <laughs> this year at E3. Um yeah. And one of the aspects I really enjoyed about the book was that another theme that kind of came through for me is how much work goes into the creating these projects, like you said, and that there's real people behind these projects, not just big corporations. And I think people start losing sight of that. Um, And I think that's really important Uh, with this book. I think that really highlights that, um, especially with all the negative comments that we've seen out there. So how do we steer the conversations from focusing on more of the, you know, the negative and, you know, and if you bring it up, you bring up to somebody saying, you know, don't be so negative. There's people, you know, there's people that create these games and they're like, Oh, big corporations are going to practice big corporations. Well, you know, even, even those folks that work at, you know, big games, there are people that make those games that have a lot of joy and passion in what they do. How do we change that? How do we steer that conversation to be more positive? That is a fantastic question, and it's a topic I didn't really expect to become important in the book and on the podcast, and I think it has become a very big focus for me in both places because, again, I'm the first one to tell you, like, I had my own preconceived notions about people at big studios and, you know, how the industry worked at the top, and I've learned so much, and I feel like we have to preface this sort of conversation by saying, you know, as I know you feel as well, when we say gamers, it's not all gamers. When we say developers, it's not all developers. Not every gamer is harassing a developer in their inbox. (laughs) Right. And and not every uh, PR person at a studio is on Twitter saying like all gamers are bad. It's not anything like that. 
but we do see too much negativity. And like you said, E3 is, is a time it really sticks out like a sore thumb. It's not hard to find. And <laughs> when uh, two different people from Gearbox have separate chapters in the book, and mm-hmm. at the time we were, I talked to the first one, Joshua Davidson, right before Borderlands 3 dropped, and the second one was Ash Lyons. I spoke with him right after release, and that turned out to be an interesting comparison. Mm. Uh, it's, I mean, Gearbox is huge. Since that time, Gearbox was sold for, I don't even remember the staggering number that the, uh, the, the holding company that bought Gearbox, uh, they're still working with 2K as a publisher, but they were sold for quite a bit of money. So that's become top level industry stuff. And at the time when they were working on Borderlands 3, a game like Borderlands 3 takes forever to make years, you know, mm-hmm. ha- half a decade. And all the while, gamers are going, where's Borderlands 3? They hear something, you know, uh, journalists are looking for any little bit of information they can get about the studio. And things started coming out about Randy Pitchford and uh, other, you know, executive level people at the studio, which uh, cast the studio in a negative light for a while. The Epic Game Store thing came up. Oh, it's going to be exclusive to the store for so long. Everybody was irate by the time there was any real news about Borderlands 3, which yeah. was, you know, you can argue, well, it's it's Gearbox, their giant studio, who cares? And, and the truth is that impacts a lot of people on a very personal level who are just getting up every morning and going, I worked my way into the industry. I get to do the coolest job in the world. How's it going to go today? And they just go and they try to make cool stuff with their friends and they check Twitter on their lunch break and everyone's furious. And yeah. it's that's not these people's faults. Uh, it's it's really unfortunate the way that this impacts the individuals in these stories, because very rarely is it anything to do with anyone below executive level. These are just the rank and file creators who are doing really cool work. They're very good at their jobs and they're doing awesome stuff that's pushing the industry forward. And then they have to deal with Reddit and Twitter and everybody on YouTube. You know, I don't have to tell anyone what the YouTube comment section is like, <laughs> but it's, it's supremely unfair. And I think all we can do is there's been a big shift this direction in the last decade or so, but we have to talk about the stories below that executive level in the creative seats, the people who are filling those seats and studios are not doing these people a good service by blocking everybody out and keeping everything Mm -hmm. on lockdown and refusing to talk about it. Uh, At that time, because of the, the way the press stuff was going, I had kind of a hard time getting these interviews out there and I made the mistake of, you know, I, I spoke with Joshua Davidson because I ran into him on Twitter. Like there was Mm. nothing to do with me reaching out to gearbox or submitting anything to their PR. I found a guy who had written some cool posts on the internet about game audio. And I said, Hey, I'd love to help you share your story. I was interested in promoting him, not gearbox and not borderlands. I wanted this interesting person I met to get some more attention on the stuff he was talking about. And we kind of ran afoul of what Gearbox wanted out there at that time. And it wasn't really our fault. Uh, they were, they were understanding. He didn't really do anything wrong or say anything wrong. He's got a very level head about him and he knows what to say and what not to say. But 
they were uncomfortable with it. And I already had a second interview lined up with Gearbox at that time. (laughs) (laughs) And so I went to the second guy who was Ash Lyons and I said, Hey, uh, I think we need to hit the brakes on this. I was honestly going to cancel it. I I Mm. wasn't comfortable. This wasn't something I'm not a, a leak guy. I'm not a gotcha journalist guy. I'm just a guy trying to make some content people like. So I said, if this is going to be an issue, let's just not do it. Mm. And to to their credit, Gearbox, in the midst of all this fury online and all these rumors and leaks and stuff that were going on, they said, just talk to us about what you want to do. And when I explained, I'm trying to shine the spotlight on the creative people at your studio. That's all I want to do. I can't really give you a list of questions I want to ask because I just want to hear about the guy's background, how he got mm-hmm. into the industry, the cool work he does, why people, you know, would make a connection with this person and recognize him as a human being. They went with it. They said, okay, that's perfectly fine. And I said, you know, you can, I'm happy to send it to you before I publish it. They said, no, it's fine. Do that. And that's the kind of stuff we need to do is the long winded answer to that question. We need to put the focus on the people doing the work, not making the decisions, but doing the creative work, understanding that those are humans who are sacrificing way too much almost across the board, across the industry. These people don't spend the time with their families that they should. They don't get paid what they should. It's almost ubiquitous across the entire industry. They're sacrificing everything to do the work they want to do. And we need to recognize that and see that they're humans and their, their lives maybe have suffered because of what they're doing. And we need to uh, appreciate that for what it is. And the faster we're able to do that, some, some critics are never going to change. We know that, <laughs> yeah. but the perception as a whole could change in a very positive direction. If we want to focus on the actual people involved. I know that's a a bit of a cheesy answer also, but we just need to appreciate that these are human beings is all. All right. So once again, huge thanks to Mark, Masao and Roger. You should check out all of their podcasts. I think they're all pretty well distributed everywhere you want to look, wherever you like to listen to shows. If you haven't checked out Inside Video Game Creation and you would like to, would love to have you. It's available at Amazon in ebook, paperback, and hardcover formats. So uh, whatever you like, they've got it ready for you. If uh, you enjoy the Game Dev Breakdown podcast, we have show notes at CodeWritePlay.com. Very important this week because I will have links to all of those podcasts you just heard clips of. So the the Game Dev Breakdown podcast is also everywhere. I would love if you would subscribe. And if you would like to reach out, you can do that on Twitter at GameDevPod, at CodeWritePlay, and me at MechaToddZilla with one D and two L's. Love hearing from you, your show notes, your uh, topics, your feedback, everything you got. I want to hear it. Reach out anytime. And until next time, work hard, do something you love, do something you're passionate about, and... I can't wait to hear about it. Can't wait to see it. Have a great weekend. Talk to you soon.